welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 250, How the United States Saw Stalin and the USSR in 1943, part 2. Before I get going, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. It is episode number 250, one that we started on April 30th of 2010. It's been an amazing ride, and I'm really enjoying it right now, uh, as you might be you know, able to tell that I've been doing this every week now. So uh, we've got lots of episodes planned through May already. So just enjoy it, and I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast and supporting it over all these years. So let's get into it. Last time, we began reviewing one of the most important magazine issues during World War II, the March 29, 1943 issue of Life magazine. Today, we continue, starting with those men and women who were supposedly the leaders of the Soviet Union. I found the short biographies intriguing, as they don't jive with what we know about these people today. But, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, so I'm not passing any judgment on the authors. They reported what they knew at the time, which is why it is so fascinating. It gives us lessons for our world today. The lesson is, don't always believe what you read or hear. I'm not going to use that tired old phrase of it being fake news. I don't like that one. I think it's news based on what we know or think we know. I will read each one of the biographies and then comment on what we know about them. Four of them I've talked about extensively over the years. They include Lazar Kaganovich, Anastas Mikoyan, Andrei Zhidanov, and Lavrenti Beria. As for the other four, I only knew anything about one of them, Nikolai Vozhenzensky. The other three were new to me. They include Klavdia Nikoleva, Nikolai Shevernik, and Alexei Shcherbakov. We'll all learn more about them shortly. Let's begin with Lazar Kaganovich. Life wrote this about him. Quote, Kaganovich, Stalin's troubleshooter, is one of the best administrators in the USSR. He is a Ukrainian Jew born in 1893 who started life as a shoemaker and joined the Communist Party in 1911. He is now on the Central Committee. After he ably directed the construction of the Moscow subway, he was given the job of reorganizing the country's railroads, and in 1937, he became Commissar of Heavy Industry. Successful in both these posts, Kaganovich was ordered and awarded the Order of Lenin and elected Vice Chairman of the Council of People's Commissars. His sister, Rosa, is supposedly married to Stalin. Lots to unpack here. Uh, first off, Kaganovich was best known by his nickname, Iron Lazar. The reason for this is his reputation for brutality and getting the dirty jobs done. However, one of the most significant blemishes on Kaganovich is his role in one of the world's great tragedies of the 20th century, the Holodomor. Along with Molotov, Kaganovich was tasked with implementing the collectivization policy that influenced the 1932-33 famine. It would cause the death of millions, along with tens of millions of people suffering from starvation. 
When Kaganovich died in 1991, just a few months before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he would be the last of the old Bolsheviks. The comment in Light's biography mentioning his sister Rosa being Stalin's wife was based on a hoax. Our next biography was one of Anastas Mikoyan. Quote, Mikoyan, an Armenian by birth, has held important cabinet positions in the USSR since 1926 when he was appointed Commissar of Internal Supply. In 1934, this former theological student became Commissar of the Food Industry, and in 1938, he switched over to the Commissariat for Foreign Trade, a post which he still holds. He is the only present Commissar beside Molotov who has ever visited the U.S. He is also a member of the State Defense Committee, organized on June 30, 1941, and holds a high-ranking post in the Communist Party's Politburo and in the Supreme Soviet. The depiction of Mikoyan here is spot on. He was one of the few men who could argue with Stalin, yet able to carry out his orders. The one blemish, so to say, is his participation in the 1930s purges in Armenia, on the orders of Stalin. Nevertheless, Mikoyan's legacy was his being a survivor. He was the only old Bolshevik who would serve under Lenin, Stalin, and Khrushchev, and retire without losing his standing. One Soviet official said this about Mikoyan, quote, The rascal was able to walk through Red Square on a rainy day without an umbrella and without getting wet. He could dodge the raindrops. Next up is Andrei Zhidanov. This is what life had to say about the man. Quote, Zhidanov, son of a Russian priest, is one of Stalin's closest friends and often mentioned as his possible successor. Primarily an energetic party worker and organizer, he has held many key party positions in the last decade. He joined the Bolsheviks in 1913 at the age of 17. In 1938, he was elected chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee and as such is considered the architect of USSR foreign policy, whereas Molotov is the builder. Last month, Zhidanov was made a lieutenant general in the Red Army as partial recognition for his work as a member of the military council of the Leningrad Front. A couple of issues with this biography. First off, Zhidanov joined the Bolsheviks in 1915, not 1913. Also, he was highly unlikely to have been the architect of Soviet foreign policy, as that laid firmly on Stalin's shoulders. Zhidanov was more of a lead propagandist than an actual creator of policy. He was also a heavy alcoholic, which led to his premature death in 1948. Lavrenti Beria, someone my mother would call a beast, then spit on the ground, was defined by life this way. Quote, like Stalin, Beria is a native of Georgia. An architect by trade, Beria is very well educated. In 1941, when the commissariats of state security and internal affairs were merged into the United NKVD, a national police similar to the FBI, he became chief of the joint organization. Assignments of Beria and the NKVD at present time our enforcement of Stalin's scorched earth policy and tracking down of traitors. 
for military and revolutionary merits, Beria, who is a state defense committee member, has been awarded the Order of Lenin and the Military Order of the Red Baron. Hard to say anything positive about Beria, given what we know about him today. Aside from being a serial rapist and murderer, he was partly responsible for organizing purges, such as the Katyn massacre of 22,000 Polish officers and officials. Beria would later also orchestrate the forced upheaval of minorities from the Caucasus as head of the NKVD, an act that is considered genocidal. I'm kind of unfamiliar with the following four people, so I had to dig deep to learn more about them. Here is what life had to say about Klavdia Nikolaeva. Nikolaeva is the only woman member of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet since the death of Krupskaya, Lenin's widow. She was born in 1893, the daughter of a day laborer. A folder in a print shop, she joined the Bolsheviks in 1909 and was twice sent to exile for her underground activities. She has been called the most popular woman in Russia. In 1941-42, as co-leader with Shevernik of a delegation to Britain, she showed her marked ability to analyze production problems. She is secretary of the All-Union Council of Trade Unions and a member of the party's Central Committee. From what I can see, this picture of Nikolaeva was spot on. The unfortunate part is that she would die just 18 months after the publication of this issue. The article also fails to mention that during the war, she organized the preparation of nurses and health personnel, the evacuation of children, and sponsorship of Red Army units by professional unions and paramedical institutions. Nikolai Shevernik, the chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union, a position, according to the Constitution, was above Joseph Stalin, but of course, that was a name only. This is what life said about him. As chairman of the All-Union Council of Trade Unions, Shevernik is the top labor leader. Since he took this post in 1930, union membership has risen from 12 to 26 million. Shevernik was born in St. Petersburg in 1888, the son of a doorman. At 14, he became a machinist's apprentice. At 17, he joined the Bolsheviks and was elected to a union post. As unions were outlawed, he was exiled. During the 1917 revolution, Shevernik headed the Artillery Workers' Union. Last winter, he was appointed chairman of a committee to investigate the loss of life and damage done to property caused by the Nazis. While Stalin was alive, Nikolai was one of his strongest allies, having done a lot of the dirty work of getting rid of Stalin's biggest threats. Despite that, Shevernik was one of the most senior old Bolsheviks to back Nikita Khrushchev after he had delivered the secret speech, which denounced Stalin's crimes. He would live until 1970, dying at the age of 82. Next up is Alexei Shcherbakov. This is what life had to say about him. Quote, Shcherbakov is head of the system of political commissars for the Red Army and assistant commissar of defense under Stalin. He is also chief of the Soviet Information Bureau and leader of the Moscow City and Regional Committee of the Party. Shcherbakov was born into a working-class family in 1901 
in the city of Ruza, near Moscow. He began working at 12, joined the Red Guard, a civilian militia around which the Red Army was built, at 16, and the party a year later. A political writer ranked high in party circles, he was elected chairman of the Union of Soviet Writers in 1934. This last appointment of Shcherbakov was due to Maxim Gorky's death that year. Now, even though by his own admission, Shcherbakov was no writer, that wasn't the role of the chairman. It was to keep a firm grip on censoring anything that Stalin uh, disapproved of. Unfortunately, Shcherbakov died of a heart attack just one day after celebrating victory over the Nazis on May 10, 1945. Eight years later, the Soviet news agency TASS announced that he had been murdered, a victim of the doctor's plot. This story was discredited later that same year after Stalin's death. Last but not least, we have Nikolai Vozhenzensky. Quote, Vozhenzensky is probably the most brilliant of the new Bolsheviks, the youngest member of the State Defense Committee an alternate of the Politburo of the CPSU, he was born in the Tula province in 1903, the son of a white-collar worker. He entered the party in 1919. On the advice of Stalin and Molotov in 1938, Vozhenzensky drafted the third five-year plan, which made preparations for organizing industry in the interior in case of war. That same year, he was made chairman of the State Planning Commission, he also serves as vice chairman of the Council of People's Commissars. Wojcinski would be persecuted and implicated in a treasonous plot known as the Leningrad Affair. Stalin was a highly suspicious man who felt threatened by anyone who became popular or was charismatic. Kirov was one example, and later Marshal Zhukov would draw his ire. Wojcinski was one such person because of his heroic efforts during the siege of Leningrad. He would be executed on October 1st, 1950. Wojcinski was 46 years old. Moving on to the issue, we flip through a few pages devoted to Russian paintings and a brief and accurate portrayal of the Soviet hierarchy. It rightfully shows that pretty much everything runs through the leader, Joseph Stalin. The next intriguing section is an interview with Joseph Davies, a former ambassador to the Soviet Union. It could be one of the most significant propaganda pieces in this life issue. He was asked 21 questions. I'll only go into some of them, because if we did all of them, this would become a five-part series based on his answers. However, I'll pick the ones that showcase what the U.S. was trying to portray to their citizens in 1943, and those answers, which were the most obviously wrong, given our present knowledge. Question one is one of the more intriguing questions and answer. Quote, can we assume that the rulers of Russia are men of goodwill toward other nations and that they desire a peaceful, stable word? Ambassador Davies replied, well, quote, yes, their public policy statements and deeds in the past decade establish that. Ambassador Litvinov, when he was foreign minister, both within and without the League of Nations, was the outstanding advocate of collective action B, 
for the non-aggressor nations in order to ensure a peaceful and stable world. What we now know is that the Soviets actually wanted anything but stability. Destabilization of parts of Asia, Africa, and Europe was part of their post-war policy. Question number five was, quote, Winston Churchill once described foreign policy as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Can you make sense of it? What are its fundamental aims? Davies begins his answer with, quote, In my opinion, the best approach to the solution of the riddle is to forget the epigram and to set one aside the idea of either an enigma or a mystery. The riddle, if riddle there be, from my experience, can be best solved by the simple approach of assuming that what they say, they mean, that they are honest in their beliefs, speak the truth, and keep their promises. If one were to assume, also, that they were strong, able, courageous, and willing to treat others honestly, if they're treated honestly themselves, the riddle can be answered with reasonable certainty. He further went on to say, quote, After this war, there will be still greater need for peace to promote their plans for the internal development of their country. There is no riddle or mystery if the statements of the Soviet government or its leaders are read in the light of these policies. They are straightforward and direct. With our 2020 hindsight, we could view that what Ambassador Davies says as an example of naivete, but that would be wrong. Davies said, quote, As a matter of fact, in my opinion, the foreign policy of the Soviet government is quite clear. Its first concern is to ensure the territorial security of the Soviet Union. This has been one of the main guiding forces behind Russian policy, in my opinion, since its beginning in ancient Kiev. His assessment of Soviet leadership is in the light of self-preservation. Question six. Uh, is there religious freedom in Russia? Davies' answer shows a total lack of knowledge of what was really going on in the Soviet Union. He says, quote, the Constitution of the Soviet Union, Article 12.3, provides that freedom of religious worship and freedom of anti-religious propaganda is recognized for citizens. By the same article, the church is separated from the state and the school to ensure citizens' freedom of conscience. Article 135 of the Constitution provides that religion shall be no bar to the right of the citizen to either vote or hold office. Now, Come on, we all know that this is utter nonsense, given our knowledge of what happened to those who held their religious beliefs steadfastly. This is a propaganda piece. Knowing that the American public at the time was very protective of their religious beliefs, they needed to hear this in order to allow them to support our relationships with the USSR. Now, Davies also acknowledges, quote, There is no question, however that despite these constitutional guarantees, there is much hostility toward religion and the party membership. Now, he would intimate that Stalin was behind the constitutional protection. Still, we all understand that this was done as window dressing and not truly an honest policy. Question nine, though. This was a real doozy in relation to the reality of post-war history. Quote, 
even if Russia is not interested in promoting world revolution for its own sake, will she use revolutionary activity as an instrument of Russian nationalism? May she, for instance, promote communist revolutions in Europe and Asia? Well, Davies responded this way, quote, This idea is again being vigorously and assiduously preached by Goebbels and other Nazi propagandists, both in and out of Germany. The express oral assurances of Premier Stalin, the commitments contained in the joint declaration by the United Nations, and the treaty made with England have definitely killed that Hitler bugaboo that he has tried desperately, and without success, to sell to Europe for these many years. The Soviet Union has an enviable record as a nation for keeping its obligations, except as an instrument of military necessity. The Soviet Union will not promote dissension in the internal affairs of other nations. Well, we certainly know that this last sentence was the exact opposite of what happened post-war. We have to understand Davies' position on the Soviet Union to understand that last answer better. While Davies' predecessor, William Christian Bullitt Jr., had been an initial admirer of the Soviet Union, he slowly came to despise Stalin's brutality and repression. On the other hand, Davies remained unaffected by reports of the disappearance of thousands of Russians and foreigners in the Soviet Union throughout his stay as U.S. ambassador. His reports from the Soviet Union were pragmatic, optimistic, and usually devoid of criticism of Stalin and his policies. While he briefly noted the USR's USSR's authoritarian form of government, Davies praised the nation's boundless national resources and the commitment of Soviet workers while building socialism. Davies would be quoted as saying, quote, Communism holds no serious threat to the United States. Friendly relations in the future may be of great general value. Well, Charles Bolin, a diplomat who served under Davies, had this to say about him. Quote, Ambassador Davies was not noted for an acute understanding of the Soviet system, and he had an unfortunate tendency to take what was presented at the trial as the honest and gospel truth. I still blush when I think of some of the telegrams he sent to the State Department about the trial. Now, I can only guess the motivation for his reporting. He ardently desired to make a success of the pro-Soviet line, it was probably reflecting the views of some of Roosevelt's advisors to enhance its political standing at home. Now, so you can see, Davies had a very pro-Soviet viewpoint. Question 15 and the answer have a lot of importance in today's world. When I wrote the script for this episode back on November 11th, 2022, the day that is the anniversary of the end of World War I, the Russians put out a statement for the reason for their withdrawal from the Ukrainian city of Kherson was that they were fighting not only the Ukrainians, but the United States, NATO, and Europe. So the question was, quote, what would Russia's attitude toward European federations, not including herself and Great Britain? Davies' answer was this, quote, it would clearly depend upon the character of such a federation, if it were to contain the seed of either actual or potential aggression, the Soviets would oppose it 
just as we all would. Assuming it was part of a general plan to secure world peace through collective action, and that it was so set up as to prevent domination by any potentially strong aggressor unit in it, I do not think that the Soviets would oppose it. The last question they found important and answer that was given was intriguing. Is number 18. What if the Russian economic system proves to be more efficient than ours? Davies replied, quote, I do not accept the premise that their economic system will prove to be more efficient than ours. From what I've seen of both systems, I am firmly of the opinion that we need not fear their competition. Our system of free enterprise under rules of fair competition, protected by government, contains springs of initiative and enterprise that will, under fair conditions, surpass anything that a bureaucracy under government administration can produce. A pure governmental socialism, even with the great vigor and energy which the Soviet leadership provides, cannot compete with the efficiency of our type of private enterprise. A completely socialist state, in my judgment, will inevitably, as human nature presently, presently is, and will continue to be for a long time, breed inefficiencies in contrast to an industrial, economic, and social system such as ours, which, in addition to the joy in the working, provides greater individual reward for extra effort and exceptional ability, coupled with police protection against unfair competition, monopolies of other special class privilege. The fact that the Soviets have constantly extended the system of individual profit in order to make their industries more productive during recent years, in my opinion, supports that point of view. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we wind up this three-part series into the March 29, 1943 issue of Life magazine. We will cover the story of collective farms, industries, theater, ballet, cinema, and architecture. In addition, there's a section on the history of Russia, its military leaders, as well as how they were doing in the war. So, until next time, Dasvidanya. Y spasiba za vinya manya.